910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. We are cruising along in the book of Daniel in our series, Reading Between the Lines. We said a few episodes ago that while God usually works through the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary, in the book of Daniel, God does the extraordinary outright. He does some amazing things that may never be repeated again. And that is something that makes the book of Daniel unique. A couple of other things that make the book of Daniel unique is that it is part history and part prophecy. So far, we've looked at the first six chapters of Daniel. All of those chapters are historical. There are a record of things that actually took place during Daniel's time under the Babylonian and Medo-Persian rule. But beginning in chapter 7, the book turns to prophecy. Daniel received visions and dreams of things that were to take place in the future. While all of it was in the future for Daniel, only a small amount is still future for us. Much of what Daniel was shown has already happened. And there's a lot of parallels between the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. John quotes the book of Daniel a few times. And much of that occurs in chapters 7 to 12. We're going to try to point some of that out as we go through the next five chapters. But one other unique thing about Daniel is the theme of dreams. First with Nebuchadnezzar's two dreams in chapters 2 and 4. And now here we are in chapter 7. Only this time, it's Daniel who's kept awake at night by things that go bump in the night. Oh, yeah. Well, we've all probably had dreams that were so disturbing that we've woken up suddenly with our hearts pounding and maybe even in a sweat. We take a deep breath, relieved and thankful when we realize it was just a dream. It may take a while to get the disturbing images out of our mind, but eventually our minds quiet down and we go back to sleep. Imagine one of those nights. Only when you wake up, you realize that what you had was not a dream, but a vision given to you by God that was of things to come. To say that would be disturbing is an understatement. (laughs) How would you respond? Would you tell anyone? Would you keep badgering God for more information? That's probably how I would do it. (laughs) Would you ask him to stop showing you these things because they're upsetting you? Do you think you could handle the responsibility of presenting these visions to people without injecting your own opinion or thoughts? Definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, these are all questions that Daniel had to ask himself, though. Before we delve into chapter seven in Daniel's dream, we should take a minute to talk about apocalyptic literature, since that's the genre that Daniel chapter seven to 12 are written in. And we've done this before, but The books of the Bible have several different genres, and usually an entire book is the same genre. Daniel, though, is the exception. Incidentally, Revelation is another exception. In Daniel, like we said, chapters 1 through 6 are historical narrative, and chapters 7 through 12 are apocalyptic. Apocalyptic derives from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means unveiling. Apocalyptic literature is a subgenre of prophetical writing that was developed in the post-exilic Jewish culture, meaning after the North and South nations were overthrown and exiled. It was a popular style of writing in the ancient world. As a genre, apocalyptic literature records an author's visions of things to come that are from God, but revealed by an angel or other heavenly messenger. And we've said this before, but it bears repeating. The main purpose of apocalyptic literature is to encourage those who are facing persecution. 
That's why apocalyptic visions usually arise out of oppression or out of a crisis. And another characteristic of apocalyptic literature is that there's a distinct difference that is made clear between the present or future circumstances dominated by evil and an age of change that will come. It is usually made evident that any positive change can only happen by radical divine intervention, meaning it's only going to happen if and when God intervenes. There is little or nothing humans can do to change their gloomy and maybe even dire circumstances. As with everything in scripture, it is meant to show the sovereignty and power of God, pointing us to Jesus, who's our only hope and the only one who can save us. Amen to that. So getting a full grasp on apocalyptic literature requires studying scripture and history. It's generally written using unusual imagery. For example, evil is usually depicted in some grotesque form and figure, as we're going to say. And sometimes the imagery is hard to understand. And there's a reason for that. The imagery is meant to both reveal and conceal, as we're going to see when we look into the visions of Daniel. If the vision blatantly spelled out who the evil kingdoms were, it would have meant big trouble for Daniel and the others who were telling of the visions. So the images were given in a way that they're concealed to the outside world. However, the message was revealed and understood by the original audience God was speaking to. While everything in the Bible has application for the Christian, we need to interpret it in light of being written to a specific group at that time. When we read apocalyptic literature in the Bible, we need to be careful not to interpret it in light of our own situation. We need to interpret it from the perspective of the original listening audience. This is part of contextualizing scripture and is crucial to correctly understand and interpret the Bible. As Lickinier Ministry notes, and I'm gonna quote here, books that purport to unveil Daniel's mysteries are perennial bestsellers and few take the time to consider whether it's even right to approach Daniel's work as a book whose signs are coming true only in our day. However, if we consider the text carefully with a view to the original audience, we can see how the text both applies to us and would have made sense for them. And they're dead on with that. Yep, yep. That's why we took the approach we did to Revelation too, because it's the only mm-hmm. right approach to take to any book. Okay, Chris, yep. enough of that. Now let's get on Daniel's crazy dream. Okay. So hold on to your hats. (laughs) Chapter seven opens saying that it is the first year of the reign of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, when Daniel had the dream. So right away, we see that chapter seven is out of chronological order. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Since it's only the first year of Belshazzar's reign, this event in chapter seven happened before chapter five, which, as you might remember, was when Daniel told Belshazzar God was going to take his life that very night. Right. So Daniel has a dream about four funky, scary beasts. So let's begin reading and we'll start from verse two. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. I'll read on. 
After this, I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and beheld a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So you'll probably be glad to hear this is the last chapter in the chiastic structure. (laughs) Yes. Chapter seven corresponds with chapter two. And if you remember chapter two, that was Nebuchadnezzar having a dream about a big statue. And that statue is directly related to these beasts that Daniel dreams about. Both are representations of four distinct evil kingdoms that have been in power and oppressed God's people, as we're going to see. There are a lot of debates about these beasts and their representations, and it has really, really muddied up the waters. Yeah, that's for sure. And that's not a surprise since it's not just the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that these beasts in Daniel's dream correlate to. They're also related to the singular beast, which is called the second beast or Antichrist that John sees in Revelation. And many of you probably know there's a lot of debate about Revelation and how it should be interpreted. So pertaining to these beasts Daniel sees in particular, Revelation 13, 1 to 2, describes the singular beast that correlates with them. It says, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. If you notice, the singular beast John sees in Revelation looks like a combination of the four beasts that Daniel sees, which is fitting since the beast in Revelation represents all the evil rulers of the world who persecute God's people and have Satan as their master. In fact, if you read chapter 12 of Revelation, you see that Satan is watching as the beast comes out of the sea. Daniel's dream, too, starts with the beast coming out of the sea. In both visions, the sea is not an actual geographical sea. It's metaphorical. The image of the sea symbolizes chaos arising because of the beast. In addition, Isaiah 57.20 connects the wicked to the sea, saying that the wicked are as a tossing sea. And if you remember when we looked at Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we said that there were disagreements about the identity of the kingdoms that the beasts represent. Some hold that the four kingdoms are Babylon, Mede, Persia, and Greece, while others believe the beasts represent Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And the difference is whether you think Mede and Persia are represented separately by two beasts, or if that kingdom, which was a merged kingdom, is represented together as one beast. The difference has to do with dating, but we certainly believe there's more biblical evidence that the four kingdoms are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And that's how we're going to present them. Right. So let's pick these beasts apart. Beast number one is a lion with wings of an eagle. The wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Some translations use heart of a man instead of mind of a man. But the original Aramaic Labab means mind. 
all agree that this beast represents the kingdom of Babylon, or more specifically, King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Babylon was the gold on the statue from King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In Jeremiah 4, Jeremiah is prophesying to Judah about their being overthrown by Babylon. Jeremiah calls Nebuchadnezzar a lion whose horses are swifter than eagles. The lion's wings being torn off is a picture of the king being turned to an animal, if you remember from chapter 4. And if you remember, his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. So the made to stand like a man on two feet is a picture of when King Nebuchadnezzar's sanity was restored to him. Babylon was the kingdom in power from 640 BC to 538 BC. The defeat of the Babylonian kingdom is prophesied in Isaiah chapters 13 and 14. And beast number two is a bear raised up on one of its sides with three ribs between its teeth. It was told to get up and eat its fill of flesh. This beast represents the Medo-Persian kingdom, the silver on the statue from King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The three horns represent Babylon, Egypt, and Libya, all who were conquered and absorbed into the Medo-Persian kingdom. Cyrus the Great was king of Persia, and he made Darius second in command. They overthrew Babylon in 539 BC. King Cyrus was a pagan king, but God used him to fulfill his purposes as prophesied in Isaiah 44. So the Medo-Persian Empire was known for its greed and cruelty. It devoured the land and people around it. At its height, the Medo-Persian Empire was 3,000 square miles and had 50 million people under its control. Its domination spanned across three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. The Medo-Persian Empire taking control of Babylon and the Jewish people is prophesied about in Isaiah 14. Isaiah shows us that it is not the Medo-Persian Empire who actually overthrew Babylon, but God's sovereign will working through them. Isaiah 14.22 says this about the Medo-Persian Empire. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and prosperity, declares the Lord. And there are also references to the Mede and Persians in Ezra and Esther too. The Medo-Persian Empire was dominant from 539 BC to 333 BC. Daniel lived to see the complete prophecy of beast number one, Babylon, and the beginnings of beast number two, the Medo-Persian Empire. Beast number three, Greece, takes the reign 200 years in Daniel's future. And let's describe beast number three. It says it's a leopard with four wings and four heads given authority to rule. And like you said, Chris, this is the Greek empire, the bronze part of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The leopard represents a fast predator. In 333 BC, under Alexander the Great, the Grecian Empire quickly and powerfully conquered the Medo-Persians in a series of battles. The four heads and four wings could represent them being dominant in all four directions. Greece became the master of millions of square miles covering Asia, Africa, and Europe. It included nations as we know them today, get ready, Iran, Turkey, parts of Central Asia, Pakistan, Thrace, Macedonia, much of the Black Sea coastal region, Afghanistan, Iraq, northern Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, and Libya. The four heads and four wings could also represent that right before his death in 323 BC, Alexander the Great divided the kingdom of Greece into four separate kingdoms. And we're going to talk about that in detail in the next episode. 
It's, that sounds crazy, but all of those, that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of territory. Yeah. The Empire of Greece reigned during much of the intertestamental period, which is the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It came to an end in 146 BC after a lot of infighting and jostling for control. It eventually fell to Julius Caesar and what was then the Roman Republic. We can find some historical information about Greece in the Apocrypha in the first book of Maccabees, chapter one. And I'm going to abridge here and just read some of it. It came to pass after Alexander of Macedon had utterly defeated Darius, the king of the Medes and Persians, that he reigned in his stead. And he waged many wars and captured fortresses and slaughtered the kings of the earth. And he made his way to the ends of the earth and despoiled a multitude of nations. He mustered a very mighty army and ruled over the lands. Okay, so how about this fourth beast? Well, things really get muddy now. Beast number four is described as being a terrifying and powerful beast with large iron teeth that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled on whatever was left. The text says this beast is different from the other three, and we're going to see that this is very, very true. It's the only one not likened to an actual animal, and it's the only one that's called terrifying. The iron teeth correspond with the iron and clay in Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And something else that's different about this fourth beast is that it's the only one that had 10 horns. And there's something really crazy about these horns. Daniel says, there came up among them the 10 horns, another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. To get a handle on this beast, we're going to have to skip around a little bit in this chapter because there's an interlude of sorts here between Daniel's vision and the interpretation. But we're going to come back to that. Daniel stays silent after getting the visions of the first three beasts. But after the fourth, he makes an inquiry to the angel as to the identity of this beast. The angel says this about it in Daniel 7, 19 to 21. He says, then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up before, which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Okay, so this beast is set apart because it's an already not yet prophecy. We've seen a lot of those in scripture and we've pointed these out before. In one way, the prophecy has already been fulfilled in our time, that is. But in another way, it's pointing to something that is still in even our future. And we're gonna try to flesh this out as clearly as we can. So let's start with the already fulfilled part of this beast for us. The fourth beast is the Roman Empire. This is the iron and clay part of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And it was unlike the other previous kingdoms. And even Nebuchadnezzar's statue showed it to be unique. While the other three kingdoms were made of one single metal, Rome was represented by iron and clay. In 146 BC, the Battle of Corinth was fought between the Roman Republic and the Greek city-state of Corinth and its allies. The battle resulted in the complete and total destruction of Corinth. This battle marked the beginning of the domination of the Roman Empire over the known world. And at its height of power in 117 AD, 
The Roman Empire included the nations as we know them today. And if you think Greece was bad, wait till you hear this list. England, Wales, Portugal, Spain, France, Italy, Austria, Switzerland, Luxembourg, Belgium, Gibraltar, Romania, Moldova, Ukraine, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, Egypt, Albania, Greece, Hungary, Bosnia, Slovenia, Croatia, Bulgaria, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan, Israel, the Mediterranean Sea, the Black Sea, Asia Minor, and some parts of Mesopotamia. It seems crazy. That is insane. The iron teeth are a symbol of the veracity and greed of the Roman Empire. You think? (laughs) Yep. They devoured their victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. The Roman Empire was known that after conquering a territory, they would take the best of the lands for themselves. So, Chris, how about these 10 horns and this little horn that has eyes and a mouth that blasphemes God? Well, while almost all scholars agree that the 10 horns correspond to the 10 toes from the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that's where the agreement ends. The meaning of the 10 horns and this little horn varies greatly. There are several views about how these 10 horns and the little horn represent an already prophecy, meaning while it was in Daniel's future, it's in our past. And we're going to touch on a few. One theory is that the 10 horns represent the 10 kingdoms of Rome that all existed during the height of their reign. These 10 kingdoms are Italy, France, Spain, Germany, Britain, Samaria, Pannonia, Asia, Greece, and Egypt. The little horn is the Turkish empire, which rose out of Asia, Greece, and Egypt. And they reason that since Islam is the national religion of Turkey, that equates to blaspheming God and making war on the saints, meaning the people of God. Another theory is that the horns represent the first 10 Caesars or emperors of Rome, and that that little horn is the 11th Caesar, Titus. Now, Titus wasn't the last Caesar, but he's considered the most dangerous to the Jewish people. This one's a little bit of a stretch, but bear with us here. Titus was a military commander whose family began to rise under the emperor Claudius and who he personally served under the Roman emperors Nero and his father Vespasian. So there's the correlation to coming out of three of the horns. And the reason he's the little horn is because he's considered the most dangerous of the Caesars to the Jewish people. And he spewed the ultimate blasphemy against God right before he became Caesar. While he was still a military leader, Titus led an assault on the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD and destroyed it completely. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is still considered the most catastrophic event in Jewish history. Destroying the house of God, they theorize, would definitely count as speaking blasphemies against God and making war on God's people. And we'll do just one more from the already fulfilled aspect. Some believe that like the first theory we mentioned, the 10 horns represent 10 kingdoms or provinces within the Roman Empire, but they do not think that all 10 existed at the same time. In fact, some came out after the demise of the Roman Empire in 395 AD. They theorized that the last kingdom of the Roman Empire didn't fall until the Reformation with the beginning of the Protestant church. In other words, The 10th kingdoms represented in the beast is the Roman Catholic Church, which, of course, the reformers dethroned by branching off into Protestantism. So who does this camp think that the little horn who blasphemes God and sets itself up against the people of God might be? 
Well, it might shock some of you to learn that they think it's the papal dynasty. Yeah. One of the proponents of this theory is Sir Isaac Newton. And here's what he said. The Roman church was the most powerful force in Europe, a little horn that became more stout than its fellows. By the time Cardinal Hildebrand became Pope in 1073, he was affirming that the Roman pontiff should not only be the universal head of the church, but also the ruler of the world. The little horn was said to speak great things which were against the most high. The blasphemous arrogance of the popes is well known to students of church history. That's the end of the quote. So there's lengthy arguments for all the views that we presented, but for time's sake, we can't present them. But whichever it is, it's already been fulfilled. So, Chris, let's now turn our attention to talking about the not yet representation of this beast. This beast is more than just the Roman Empire. The angel tells Daniel this about the fourth beast in chapter 7, verses 23 to 25, and I'll read that. There shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom... Ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hands for a time, times, and a half time. Okay, so let's start taking this apart. This beast is from all kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and bringing it into pieces. This beast represents Satan's kingdom. First, we said that all four of the beasts in Daniel correspond with the beast in Revelation, who's also called the Antichrist and man of lawlessness. Revelation says that Satan controls this beast. So let's start with devouring the earth, trampling it down and breaking it into pieces. When you put this up against other scripture, the earth represents unbelievers. Now, it's true that Satan can make life pretty miserable for believers, but he can't devour us, not if we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. We belong to Jesus and we're sealed. However, God does allow him to have dominion over unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 2.4 says the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who's the image of God. Satan's kingdom is and will continue to destroy the lives of those who do not belong to Jesus. The angel says, as for the 10 horns out of this kingdom, 10 kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. That's direct correlation to Revelation chapter 17, which says, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and 10 horns. These 10 horns represent a complete number of evil leaders, kings, and rulers that set themselves up directly opposed to God and who Satan is pulling the strings on. Okay, so if that's the case, what's this little horn? Well, Daniel 7 says... This horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So, Chris, this little horn is the Antichrist, but let's flesh this out a little bit. Okay. The Antichrist is also mentioned in Daniel 9, verse 27, as we're going to see later, as the ruler who will come. 
who sets up the abomination. And again, this correlates with revelation. The fact that this little horn comes out of three horns could be a metaphor for displacing the power of earthly kingdoms, since three is used as a symbolic number in the Bible. It means completeness, but with a Trinitarian reference. Throughout scripture, beginning in the garden in Genesis, Satan has set up a counterfeit kingdom that tries to mimic God's kingdom, but is directly opposed to it. And never has Satan wanted to make war on God's people more than after Jesus defeated him at the crucifixion and resurrection, which was during the Roman Empire. Coming out of the three horns could be a sign that this is the Antichrist, which we'll define in a minute, who sets up against our Trinitarian God. And there's different views on whether there's one Antichrist or a reoccurring Antichrist throughout history. Anti in Greek has two meanings, against or in place of. It could be someone, several people, or an institution who works against God, or it could be someone who seeks to subvert the authority of God and be looked to in place of God. Well, with an antichrist, it's both. It's someone, a group, government, institution, who's not only working against God, but they're simultaneously seeking to be a God themselves. So is there one antichrist who will come in the future, as many believe, or have there been many antichrists throughout history? Again, the answer is both. John talks about many antichrists in 1 John 4, 1 through 3, which says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you will know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And Paul mentions that there's also a single antichrist who he calls the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2, where he says, for that day will not come, meaning Jesus's second coming, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God, little g, or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, big G, proclaiming himself to be God. So it's both. Paul's man of lawlessness is the same as the Antichrist, which is the same as the second beast in Revelation 13. We don't really have time to delve into all this, but we do go deeper into it in our Deciphering Revelation series. So I'm going to encourage you all to listen to that if you're confused. But one last thing that we're going to touch on quickly is that the angel says that this evil beast will reign over God's people for a time, times, and a half time. Again, we talked about this in Revelation, but time is defined as a year. So time means one year, times means two years, and a half time means half a year. So it comes out to three and a half years. The mention of three and a half years corresponds with the duration of the Antichrist's rule in Revelation 11 to chapter 12, verse 14, and chapter 13, verse 5. It's not a literal time period. When you contextualize it and compare it to other scripture, it means a time that God's people will face suffering. And do any of your heads hurt yet? No, we, well, do, we do describe more in Revelation. We do, but mm -hmm. don't worry. Let's quickly look at the part that we skipped over in Daniel 7 so we can end this episode with some encouragement. All these beasts, even this fourth beast, which is Satan's kingdom, have already been dealt with by God and are not someone we need to fear. 
Daniel 7, 11 to 12 says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season at a time. As we all know, or should know, Satan, the Antichrist, and all the wicked's fate was sealed at Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. And spoiler alert, they're going to be condemned to hell and in torment for all eternity. And as an even further encouragement, the angel tells Daniel in verses 17 and 18, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. You know, it's not just Jesus that prevailed over all evil, but through him, his people, meaning the saints, do too. This kingdom the angel's speaking of is God's kingdom. And as children of God, brothers and sisters of Jesus, we share in Jesus's inheritance of God's kingdom. Amen to that. So let's end with the important takeaways from the beast. The beasts get progressively fiercer. This dream was a prophecy to Daniel to show the people that things were going to get worse in the world before they got better. But it was also to give them hope that God is sovereign over it all and already had a plan in motion to defeat these beasts and save his people. We on this side of history know that that plan is Jesus. Jesus has prevailed and through him, all his people have prevailed and will continue to prevail, just like you said, Chris. Absolutely. And the angel shows this future victory of God's people to Daniel in verse 13 to 14, which says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And that's an encouraging place to end today. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Just as a reminder, the Bible Blueprint, a guide to better understanding the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, is available on Amazon and at all major book outlets. It's also available on Kindle as an ebook, and an audible narration for it will soon be released. And you might recognize the voices of the two people who narrate it. You might. <laughs> Have a blessed day, everyone. 